Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning and happy Easter, everybody. Oh, you know, for centuries, Easter has been uh, a great holiday that the church has celebrated for something very, very significant, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for centuries, there's been a tradition in the church where an exchange takes place between the minister and the congregation. I'm sure you remember it. It's where the minister says, he has risen. It doesn't have to be a minister. It can be somebody else that says it to you, but he has risen. And you respond with, he has risen indeed. And so why don't we practice that right now? So I'm going to say, he is risen. And you say, okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And some of you weren't playing along. So let's do it one more time. He is risen. I got you that time. Great job. Well, Easter celebrates the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins on Good Friday and then conquered death three days later when he resurrected himself back to life. This morning, I'd like to introduce you to a disciple who struggled to believe this simple fact, just like many of us do today. And he had doubts and questions. Uh, but Jesus helped him with his doubts and questions, and that helped that disciple believe. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into God's Word together this morning. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that Easter doesn't end with Good Friday. Thank you, Lord, that Easter ends with the resurrection on Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, that there's new life and hope that comes at the end of the Easter story. Lord, as we look at your word right now, would you please, by your spirit, illuminate the text for us. Help us to see things that we could not see on our own. And Lord, would you please shine the light of your spirit and your word in our hearts to show us areas in our hearts that you want to do surgery on. So that, Lord, by the time we're done with this, this study of your word this morning, we can leave this time with a strengthened faith, a bolder faith, and a greater confidence in who you are. Lord, we ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I hope you've got your uh, PDF handout from our website and a pen and your Bible open. And if you do, I'd like to invite you to open up to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context on the passage we're going to be looking at. Uh, the first 23 verses of John 20 describe the empty tomb being discovered by the disciples and some of the women that were close to Jesus. And they also describe in the first 23 verses of John 20, Jesus walking through a locked door at a house where 10 of his 11 remaining disciples were hiding. And they were hiding because they were afraid that the Romans were going to come and hunt them down, arrest them and kill them too because they were associated with Jesus or they were afraid the Romans would accuse them of stealing Jesus's body. And so 
there's just a lot of fear right now and paranoia uh, amongst the believers in Jerusalem at this time. Now, John 20, 20 tells us they were filled with joy when Jesus walked through a door and showed up in the house where they were meeting because it proved to them that he had done what he had said he was going to do. He had defeated the grave and he had come back from, from the dead. Now, one of the disciples was not there. He did not see this first experience with Jesus after, after his resurrection. And we pick up the story in verse 24 of John 20. And I believe in this passage we're going to look at, it's, it's verse 24 to 29, there are two reasons why Easter changes everything. And so follow along with me, if you would, as I read. I'm going to read the first uh, few verses, 24 and 25. First couple of verses, excuse me. Now it says, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, those are strong words from one of Jesus' own disciples. But here's the first point on your outline that I, I want you to make sure you get written down. And that is this, the evidence is reliable. The evidence is reliable. Now, it says in verse 24 that Thomas was one of the 12. This is John reminding us that, that Thomas was one of the original 12 disciples. So this means that Thomas had spent three years traveling with Jesus, listening to his teaching, witnessing the miracles. Uh, Thomas, Thomas saw everything. He saw Jesus get arrested and crucified. However, we're also told Thomas was not he was not with them when Jesus came the first time to visit the other disciples in the previous paragraph. Now, Thomas wanted to see proof that Jesus was still alive with his own eyes. He, now, let's, let's not miss this easily overlooked fact here, what's happening in the text. In demanding to see the risen Savior with his own eyes... Thomas is also refusing to believe the testimony of 10 other witnesses. Not, not one, not just two, not three witnesses, but 10. And they weren't just any witnesses off the street that were strangers. These were 10 witnesses that were trusted friends of his. And they... Their testimony wasn't sufficient for Thomas to believe that Jesus had actually did what he'd said he was going to do. And so uh, let's not miss that. And if that, by the way, doesn't prove the unbelief and pride and stubbornness that exist in our sinful hearts, I don't know what else would. Uh, it's also a sobering reminder of the foolish things we've all said, including myself, during our moments of disappointment, and discouragement with the Lord. 
And so let's let's pause the video here just for a moment, and I'd like you to talk about the discussion question you see on your on your handout uh, for just a couple of minutes here with uh, your uh, friends, your family, or if you're by yourself, that's fine. But I'd like you to think about this question and come up with a couple of answers. And it says, if you were a police detective tasked with finding a missing person, what kinds of evidence would you look for in order to track them down? If somebody just turned up missing, like for example, Jesus, he's supposed to be dead, buried in the tomb, but all of a sudden, he's, his body's gone, they don't know where he went, well how do you find him? What, what would you do if you were a police detective? What kind of questions would you ask? What, what evidence would you look for? Who would you talk to? Those are the things I'm, I'm wanting you to interact on and think about for just a minute or two. So go ahead and do that. Pause the video, and then I'll be back in a couple minutes, and we'll continue our study. All right. I'm sure you had some great discussion uh, as you interacted over this question. Here's You probably came up with some ideas like this. You know, you would want to, first of all, analyze the crime scene to see if there was any helpful evidence such as DNA. Um, you'd want to identify those who have motives to maybe kidnap the missing person. Uh, you would want to interview eyewitnesses. Uh, you might want to canvas the area if you were a detective or working with a police force. You'd want to canvas the area where they were last seen to see if there were any clues like missing articles of clothing or a, uh, a cell phone, things like that to help you piece together a timeline and so on and so forth. You know, all the stuff we see on the police criminal detective shows uh, today. So the same kind of detective work, though, did you know it's already been done in figuring out what happened to Jesus after he was crucified on Good Friday? Uh, in fact, there are three types of evidence that I really want you to seriously consider. And so here's letter A on your outline. The first is prophetic evidence. There's prophetic evidence that supports the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, there are at least 43 prophecies written at least 700 years earlier that describe in detail the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And then in the New Testament, in the New Testament, during Jesus' ministry, he predicted his resurrection at least 17 times in his teachings, saying he was going to be arrested and crucified and then raise himself from the dead three days later. And so, given all that information, think about this predicting with 100% accuracy where and how we are going to die is impossible for us, right? I mean, we can't do that. However, God predicted the details of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection through the prophets centuries earlier before he was even born. And then, I mean, that's impressive. And then when Jesus was born, and then Jesus is 30 years later, goes and starts his earthly ministry, he predicted how he was going to be arrested and crucified and then raise himself from the dead three days later. I mean, folks, we gotta, we got to realize 
the weathermen and women on our local TV stations are not that accurate. The weather apps that we use on our phones to plan our day or our travel, they're not that reliable. Uh, the Las Vegas odd makers, uh, doctors, economists, financial advisors, and political strategists are not that accurate. And yet, we believe them. That's... <laughs> We believe them, all those examples I just gave, and we make decisions based on the information they tell us, and they're not even close to as accurate as God was about the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. And so there's prophetic evidence. Here's another type of detective work that's been done that proves that the resurrection is reliable, and that is eyewitness testimonies. So that's letter B on your outline, eyewitness testimonies. The scriptures document, and so do other historical documents, accounts from people who saw Jesus walking around on earth after he died. Over the course of just over a month, so it wasn't just one day, it wasn't a week, it was about 40 days, give or take. Over the course of about 40 days, he appeared to all of his disciples, several women, and even 500 believers at one time. 500, a crowd of 500. That's bigger than a lot of churches in this country. That means there is more reliable, corroborated eyewitness testimony to prove that Jesus was alive after his death than there is proving the existence of aliens, Elvis, or Bigfoot. And yet, there are people who believe aliens exist and that Elvis is still alive and Bigfoot's for real. In fact, there's more eyewitness testimony proving, and it's been corroborated and it's reliable and been tested, proving the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's more reliable than some of the other things we believe that witnesses have told us about certain crimes or events or seeing a tornado or a hurricane or whatever. We take their word for it. Or, or this, is, this is even really sadder. We sometimes believe gossip. We've been told by just one person. And we don't ever check to see if that's true. Just some food for thought. Next, letter C on your outline. There's forensic evidence. If we were to put on our crime scene investigation suit and hat and don a badge and look closely at the facts, I think we'd find that the resurrection is for real. In fact, here's some questions that cynics and skeptics have asked to try and disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first is, was Jesus really dead? I mean, was he really dead? And so they, they ask that question because they want to somehow build the argument that Jesus was able to break out of the tomb and escape and maybe go hide and disappear on the other side of the world and come up with a new identity or something like you've heard in a movie. Uh, they, they, they want to try and suggest that he never actually died. Like he wasn't dead all the way. He was able to escape. However, reliable historical documents tell us otherwise. 
for example, um, crucifixion was a form of capital punishment practiced very often by the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, it, was, it involved being hung on a cross uh, several feet above the ground, and, uh, but before doing so, the Romans would flog the criminal almost to the point of death, beating him with a whip. That had, that had bones and rocks and other spikes on it to, to cut the skin. And so they would do that to just beat the prisoner into submission almost to death. In fact, many criminals and prisoners died just from the flogging. So they didn't even need to be hung on a cross. Well, then they would put them up on the cross and nail them there. In Jesus's case, he hung on the cross for about six hours next to two other criminals. Roman soldiers would typically break the legs of the prisoners so they could no longer pull themselves up to breathe because when you're suspended on a cross like this, you, have to, you would have to pull up using your arm and shoulder muscles to pull up so that your diaphragm could breathe because your whole body weight is pushing down on the, the bottom half of your body. So uh, all I have to say, the Romans figured this out, and they were ready to usually get on with their day and take the bodies down and off the crosses, and they wanted to get the next group of criminals up on the cross so they could keep on ministering their justice. Well, they would break the legs of the criminals hanging on the cross. Breaking their legs made it too hard for them to breathe, and they would, in essence, suffocate to death on the cross. Well, John chapter 19 tells us that the soldiers broke the legs of the two criminals on either side of Jesus, but they did not have to break the legs of Jesus himself because they observed for themselves that Jesus was already dead. He had already given up his spirit. He had already died. And Luke 23 tells us his death was also witnessed by the crowds who were around those three crosses watching everything that happened. And so there are other people that can corroborate that Jesus was really dead. So he could not have escaped or broke out of the tomb where he was buried. buried. Next, another question that skeptics like to ask is, could his body have been stolen? Maybe the disciples stole his body. This would have been near impossible. And here's why. A two-ton stone was rolled down in front of the tomb where Jesus was buried in order to secure it. Then it was marked with a Roman seal, which was the stamp of Roman power and authority that would tell any grave robber, if you break this seal and try to move this, this stone, you will be arrested and crucified just like the man buried in here was. In addition to that, there was a detachment of Roman soldiers put in front of the tomb to guard it. We don't know exactly how many this was, but it was most likely a handful. And so those soldiers were assigned to guard the tomb, and they knew if they didn't fulfill their mission, they too could be put to death for failing to take care of their mission and to serve the empire. Now, the disciples could not have stolen Jesus' body because they were too scared they'd be arrested for doing so. Remember, they were hiding out in a house. They didn't want to be seen in public because they were afraid. 
And so John 20 tells us that for more than a week, they were hiding behind locked doors. So they couldn't have stolen his body. And next, the third question that a lot of skeptics like to ask is, were the disciples hallucinating? You know, were they on drugs or something or imagining things? Not likely either. John 21 tells us that Jesus ate at least one meal with his disciples. And that's important because ghosts don't eat food. Also, he spent a significant amount of time with them and others after his resurrection. Uh, we're also told in 1 Corinthians 15 that 500 people, as I mentioned earlier, saw him at once. And the likelihood that 500 people would see the same hallucination all at once is very, very unlikely. And so, after the prophetic and the eyewitness and forensic evidence points to this, all, 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 all that evidence points to is, is this simple truth. Jesus' body was never found, and it still hasn't been found today. And so with that, if you would look back at the text with me, and I'm going to read verses 26 to 29. Eight days later, eight days later, so just over a week later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God! Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here's the, here's the second point on your outline. And this is the second reason that Easter changes everything. And it's simply this. The resurrection is real. The first point was the evidence is reliable. And I've already proven that to you. But it all brings us to this point here of number two. The resurrection's real. Thomas gets his proof. Now, notice it says in verse 26, although, although the doors were locked, Jesus came, meaning Jesus was still not using doors at this point. Notice also how Jesus timed his second visit just perfectly. Not only was Thomas there, but so were the other 10 disciples. So they could see him lovingly correct Thomas. Then it says, he, he told him to put your finger here and put your hand here. Did you see how gently Jesus deals with Thomas and how specific he is at providing the evidence? It's important to notice that Thomas did not tell Jesus directly what his doubts were. He only told the disciples. And so uh, this is a good reminder that Jesus heard what Thomas said because Jesus is God. If God hears everything we say everywhere at any time. And that's a sobering reminding, reminder, I think, for all of us, too, that even in those moments when we're discouraged or disappointed with the Lord, we need to be careful what we say because the Lord is still listening to us. And so Jesus says, Thomas, touch here and touch there. Do you see this? Now let's just pause the video again here and I'd like you to talk about the next discussion question on your handout and it's this. 
why do you think it'd be a bad idea to require God to prove himself to you every time he asks you to trust him? Talk about that or think about that by yourself for just a couple minutes and I'll be right back. Welcome back. I hope you uh, came up with some good, intriguing answers to that question. Here's a couple that came to my mind. I'm sure you came up with some better ones. I, I wish I could be there with you to hear some of your thoughts because I, I know you guys always come up with great ideas that I hadn't thought of before, but here's a couple. Um, first of all, your faith wouldn't grow. We know that's important to the Lord. Uh, if you also required the Lord to prove himself every time he wanted you to trust him, you would offend God with unbelief. And that shows up several times in the scriptures. He does not like it when we doubt him. Uh, next, you most likely would not get to see God do some great things in your life because we know from the scriptures, especially Hebrews uh, chapter 11, that he's a rewarder of faith. He loves to reward faith when we trust him. And we see it in the Gospels, for example, I think it's in Mark chapter 6, that when people don't trust him, don't believe in him, they don't get to see the Lord do great works in their lives. And so those are a few that came to my mind. Now, back to the text, notice in verse 27 where Jesus says, Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is a loving correction that Jesus was trying to tell Thomas. And I, I would paraphrase it like this. Thomas, let's be done with the cynical, skeptical, critical attitude that requires everyone to produce evidence to, for your burden of proof. Uh, let's, you're not the standard here, Thomas, of what truth is. Uh, you're not the one that determines what's right, what's wrong. And you need to be more willing to believe. That's what I think Jesus was trying to tell Thomas here. And now we've got to be careful with this because obviously we could we could fall into a ditch and we want to avoid that. And as there's one ditch, we can be too cynical. And then the other ditch we want to avoid is being too gullible. We want to be in the middle. And, that, and that's, we, we want to ask good questions uh, and we want to think and we want to pray and do our due diligence in reading the scriptures, but uh, you know the Lord doesn't want us to become so cynical that we demand he prove himself anytime he asks us to trust him. Now, over the years, numerous surveys have shown that people's biggest fear is either the death of a loved one or dying themselves. I mean, let's just be honest, billions of dollars are spent each year researching solutions to the greatest causes of death. Cancer and heart disease and AIDS and several other illnesses. All for one reason. Really, if you boil it down, just one reason. So we can delay death. So we can put it off as long as possible. Although there's nothing wrong with medical research, it only delays the inevitable. We're all going to die at some point. The statistics on death have always been the same, and they will never change. One out of one people die. And so Easter changes everything 
Because Jesus defeated the one problem we all share in common, which is death. They were going to die. Jesus also is the only person in human history who died and then raised himself three days later to talk about it. No one had ever done that before, and no one's done it since. Uh, the only exception is Lazarus in John chapter 11. If you haven't read that story, I'd encourage you to read it. But in John chapter 11, Lazarus died and he was buried, but he didn't raise himself. Jesus did. So to be accurate to the scriptures, Jesus raised his friend Lazarus in John 11. Then Jesus raised himself in John chapter 20. Now, Easter also changes everything because Jesus made it possible for us to die and then to be raised to new life and live forever with him. Notice in verse 29, let's look at the text one last time. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, do we need to see Jesus with our own eyes or touch him with our own hands in order to believe in him? Obviously, the answer is no. In fact, Jesus says here in verse 29 that we don't need that. He's talking to two groups of people, I think. First, I think Jesus is telling the disciples there would be millions of people who will believe in him in his resurrection who did not see him. I also think Jesus is talking to us here when he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. I think he's talking to us too. I think he's saying we are blessed when we believe in him without seeing all the details. When, when we are willing to place our faith in him and to believe who he is and what he said and what he's done without having all the evidence that a Thomas would demand, that we are blessed. Why? Why? Because Jesus loves it when people place their faith in him based on the sufficient evidence that I've given you today. Jesus loves that. If you haven't believed in Jesus Christ by making him your personal Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to do that today. The scriptures teach that anyone who repents of their sin and by faith trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, that person can have forgiveness for their sins, peace with God, eternal life in heaven with him, and so much more. All you need to do is voice a simple prayer from the sincerity of your heart to the Lord that goes sort of like this. Dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and were resurrected three days later. Would you please forgive me for my sins? I admit and I agree with you that I am lost that I, I have sinned against you, that I cannot save myself, that my sin separates me from you, and that I deserve hell for my sin. But I believe and I thank you for dying on the cross for my sin so that I wouldn't have to. Please come into my life, take control of my life, Jesus, and I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really that simple.
Now, there's two applications I want to leave you with today before we close this uh, little Bible study we're doing here on Easter Sunday. Here's the first application that comes to mind. I really want to encourage you to avoid asking God to prove himself before you trust him. Now, this could be before you trust him uh, to come to faith in Christ and begin a relationship with him. But it's also, this applies to believers. There are believers who struggle to trust the Lord with, say, having a new, uh, getting a spouse or getting healed from a physical ailment or getting a job or some financial need or numerous things. I want to encourage you to avoid asking God or demanding that God prove himself. First of all, such a mindset puts us in the position of authority that can approve or disapprove of God. It's, it's really our pride and our sin nature wanting God to get our approval when he doesn't need it. We, we need him. He doesn't need us. It, it puts the burden of proof and the standard of proof well, the burden of proof on God, and it puts the it makes us the standard of proof, where we get to decide what's true and what's not true. Secondly, it offends God because in his mind he's already proven himself. He's proven his existence in creation, in the order of the universe, the miraculous functioning of the human body and how we're put together, and so much more. He's proven his trustworthiness by fulfilling all the prophecies in the Christmas story and the Easter story. And he's done it down to a thimble. So just because Jesus didn't do it in our lifetime, it doesn't mean it's not true. Next, the second application that comes to mind, I really want to encourage you to read books to boost your faith and defend your faith. As I said earlier, the Lord doesn't expect us to be gullible. In fact, when Jesus was asked uh, during his ministry what the greatest commandment is, he replied in Matthew chapter 22, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Thus, by reading good books about the Christian faith, you can love the Lord with your mind. And that's important, and you'll grow in your faith. Reading in good Christian books can also help equip us to defend the faith, to answer questions that our unbelieving friends and relatives and co-workers might have about the faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that's where Peter says, Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have. And so the Lord doesn't want us to be gullible. He wants us to be knowledgeable of the scriptures and to read other books about the scriptures that can help grow our faith and help us think theologically. And there's a lot of great books out there I could recommend, and there's some you need to stay away from. And so if you're needing help in that area, please feel free to contact me. I would love to recommend some books to you that will help grow your faith just like they've helped grow mine. Well, I'm sure you'll have time during this scaled-back season all of us are going through uh, as our lives have been simplified and we're on restricted uh, permissions regarding, you know, we can't go out as much as we want. We can't leave the house as much as we want, and we can only do essential things. Well, 
The one upside to that is we have no excuse for not reading more. And so I'm sure you'll find, just like I've found, uh, we've got more time to read now than we ever have. So again, I want to encourage you to read some good books that will boost your faith and help you defend your faith. Well, that's all I've got for this morning. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you have a joyous and blessed Easter. I'll be right back here next Sunday, and I look forward to seeing you. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.